Welcome to This Week in Bitcoin and Policy, an unfiltered take on what's happening on the Hill with Bitcoin and policy. Today's guest, Grant McCarty, co-founder and co-executive director of the Bitcoin Policy Institute. And here's your host, Rod, at BitKite on Twitter. Welcome back to This Week in Bitcoin and Policy, episode number three. Here's a quick rundown of what is going on in the past week in Bitcoin and policy and what we plan to cover in this week's show. First, we're going to explain the Senate and House hearings, their format, their purpose, what we can expect from the Senate hearing on December 1st on FTX. Second, a discussion on Harvard PhD candidate Matthew Ferranti, I hope I got that pronunciation right, who released a paper suggesting that central banks hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Third, the New York mining moratorium finally, officially signed by the governor. Um, This was a long time in the making, by the way. And then fourth, we may dabble into uh, and have another submission to what's becoming a recurring segment, the Conspiracy Theory Corner. So joining me today is, again, Grant McCarty, the co-founder of Bitcoin Policy Institute. Grant, how the heck are you? Doing great. Uh, third time the charm, right? So if you hated the first two episodes and you're, for some reason, back for the third, you know, we're going to kill this one. That is that is freaking right, man. Um, you, by the way, are a natural. Um, by the way, I'm riding – did you watch the game, the USA game? No, I just watched notifications on my phone. Notifications. I was, uh, you know, elbowed deep into that game. Tom, did you watch that game? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Okay. Well, USA won. We are advancing. Uh, I'm riding a high right now. So this is going to be a fun uh, and energetic episode. Yeah, the World Cup is awesome. And the fact that it's playing in this time of year for the first time, I think ever, is kind of wild. Well, it's interesting. I don't know about you, but uh, a lot of my friends, people I know, they weren't that pumped about the last couple Olympics. Um, so it's really interesting seeing people get super hyped about the World Cup. Uh, it, it's nice. Yeah. Well, I think with the World Cup, there's just one game and one winner. Where mm. with the Olympics, there's multiple sports. And Tom's giving me a little bit of eye roll potentially. But there's just one outcome. You know, it's pretty binary. Yeah. And uh, for four years, similar to the Olympics, you're playing and you're practicing as a team to qualify, then advance, and then hopefully and ultimately – uh, win the World Cup, which you go down in the history books. Um, but I don't think we're going to be talking about the World Cup as much. Um, but I, but in, a, in a weird way, I will say this. Like, what are venues where you can bring all different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds and cultures together? So when I go to, let's say, the Titans game, yep. you know, I'm sitting there and drinking a beer and, and hanging. I'm around just like every single different type of person. But maybe not where I'm hanging out, where I live versus um, other areas, um, yeah, if that be- makes any that's sense. That's the beautiful thing about sports, especially something like soccer. All you need is a, a ball and some friends. Sometimes you don't even need friends, you know, uh, right. to, to play soccer. Um, and this is coming from a, a pretty anti-soccer guy. Um, Wait, you didn't play soccer growing up? No, I played baseball. And so, okay. you know, we always made fun of the soccer, the soccer kids. Um, looking back, you know, probably pretty immature, but um, yeah, you still harbor some of that. Are you playing pickup baseball? No, no. They don't really have sandlot games. I just play pickup basketball and, you know, kind of feel my MCL give out, you know, every other time. So that's fun. Gotcha. All right. Let's just jump right 
into it after that nice little back and forth. Um, so there is an FTX uh, hearing coming up this week, right, Grant? That's correct. Yeah, okay. On December 1st. On December 1st, which I believe is a Thursday. Yep. Um, let's talk about congressional hearings. Uh, let me ask you two questions. How do they work and why do they exist? Sure. So uh, congressional hearings can take a few different forms uh, or have a few different purposes. Um, most of the time, right, they're generally uh, trying to, you know, obtain more information about an issue. Sometimes they're getting opinions on, you know, proposed legislation. Sometimes they just want to hear what people think about the issue du jour. Uh, sometimes, as in uh, what we're going to see coming up, is they're conducting a legitimate investigation. So we've seen this um, in the past with social media companies. You know, they bring in CEOs and they're asking hard-hitting questions. They're trying to get to the bottom of an issue uh, and and figure out what enforcement mechanism is needed to stop, you know, XYZ bad thing from happening. So with the FTX situation, uh, as you can imagine, lawmakers and regulators are scrambling right now trying to figure out what the heck happened and how they can stop it from happening in the future. And so one of the big questions is, uh, do our existing laws and regulations allow uh, the United States government to effectively stop something like FTX from happening in the future? Or do we need new laws and regulations to stop, stop something like FTX from happening in the future? So that's kind of the crux of what we're trying to figure out in this situation. Um, but yeah, these congressional hearings, you'll see they range from, you know, again, hard-hitting questions, actually getting to the bottom of, of an issue. And sometimes you just get a politician up there who wants to pontificate for a few yep. minutes or have some talking points and and get those sound bites and throw it on their social media. So – by the way, that's what I'm worried about with all of these different hearings. So in a weird way, believe it or not, I used to listen to C-SPAN. And instead of getting the sound bites that are chopped up – and I, by, by the way, I recommend this. Don't go to like NBC or any of these other uh, news sources. And go definitely to, don't go to the congressperson's Twitter account because yeah. they're, they're going to find the best 30 oh. seconds, you know, where they, they said the thing that they've scripted for a week, right? Um, that's not – the the three hour you know total hearing. Unfortunately, this is a part of the proof of work. And if you have the time, um, knuckling through the two and a half three hours and just watch C-SPAN the entire way through, in a weird way, C-SPAN will have or I think it's C-SPAN. They'll have the um, video on before the hearing is actually started, so you can actually see. When I saw Zuckerberg testifying, I forget what it was for. Uh, you'll see which congressman will come up to him beforehand, shake his hand, talk to mm. him, and which ones will be on the opposite side, don't even look at him, and they're ready for a fight. And then I'm like, okay, well, then if you follow the money and then you follow you know, the relationships and so on, you can kind of tell, put piece together the story. With that said, looking at the entire story and looking at the soundbite before, the actual soundbite, and then after, um, that really sets up the story, and I don't know if that was uh, helpful for you. Yeah, it is. It ties into what we're going to see here. So um, we've got uh, the hearing coming up Thursday. It's called Why Congress Needs to Act, Lessons Learned from the FTX Collapse. Now – That scares me, by the way. Just that title, Why Congress Needs to Act. Because it sets the frame. It you, sets you, the frame that they should do something to – solve this rather than a free market or the market-based solution of, you know what? Sure. Yeah. At the very least, it doesn't allow for that possibility, right? So that frame is saying, you know, Congress needs to act. It doesn't ask the question, does Congress need yeah. to act? 
So it assumes the frame. Yeah, that is dangerous. I think anytime uh, you have you know some sort of uh, hearing or piece of legislation um, that assumes foundational ideas, um, that is concerning. Uh, that said, you know this committee hearing is not the official you know investigation of the FTX collapse as you might think, right? Um, this is just going to have the chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, uh, and so like I was talking about earlier, what they're really trying to figure out with this hearing is, hey, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Does the CFTC currently have the ability, the authority to stop this from happening in the future? Mm -hmm. If yes, why didn't you stop it? Mm -hmm. If no, what powers do you all need to stop this in the future? And that's what this hearing generally is going to be about. Again, there's going to be some, you know, uh, sound bites, some talking points from various politicians just trying to make a point. But at its core, I do think this is exploratory where Congress is trying to figure out, hey, if the CFTC did have what they needed to, to stop this, why didn't it happen? So they're assuming that the CFTC didn't have the powers that they needed to stop this. So that's why they think they need to act. That Do you think the CFTC, not to go down this rabbit hole, is going to be jostling or positioning themselves such that they can be in the pole position to act in the future versus, let's say, the SEC or other any any other government body? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think a lot of people have different opinions on this. Uh, I think Sam Bankman-Fried was really encouraging for the CFTC to have more oversight over the cryptocurrency industry yep. broadly. And I think there are a lot of people who, you know, might not understand why a certain regulatory body would want more power over a specific, you know, industry, what benefit that actually, that really gives them. Uh, I think one theme we're going to come back to again and again is just this concept of power and that power is power corrupts, power corrupts. It's extremely appealing and it doesn't always have to have a one-to-one -one correlation of, you know, oversight over this industry means X, Y, Z, good thing for me. Mm -hmm. um, there are people, you know, government or government agencies that, um, you know, are, are just drawn to having power control over, over specific industries. Um, now, there are many people that just think the CFTC has, you know, more authority over these things and, and should be uh, in charge of this. At the end of the day, I don't know where this is going to land because, again, SBF was lobbying to have the CFTC have more oversight. Now that he's kind of, you know, ostracized um, in D.C., you know, we might see pushback against that and we might see more enforcement from the SEC. So again, that's a big part of what we're going to find out with this hearing. That's what I'm really interested in. Um, but that's only the, the first hearing. And yeah. that leads us to the next hearing that was announced by the uh, House Financial Services Committee, which is uh, headed by, you know, Congressman Maxine Waters, who you might have heard on a previous episode. We were talking, uh, she's been working on a stable coin bill and a regulatory bill with bipartisan bill with Representative Patrick McHenry. So she's very involved in the cryptocurrency industry, very concerned about consumer protection. And uh, she's leading this hearing that's happening on December 13th that is going to be an investigation into the FTX collapse. Now, they're trying to bring in the big players. They're trying to bring in SPF. They're trying to bring in Alameda. They want members of Bi from Binance there. They haven't called any of these witnesses yet. But it's likely that that hearing, if you're really here for the drama, you yeah, know, yeah. if you really want the I interesting want the days stuff, of our lives. Yeah, you want so. the soap opera. Uh, it's likely that it's going to be the House Financial Services Committee. And then the last thing is 
it's likely that this is only going to be one of of many hearings. Uh, this is going to drag on. This is not something that we're going to figure out overnight. This is a rhetorical question because I do not want you to answer this. But something that is blowing my mind right now is how even this guy's admitted basically to fraud, how he's not in jail. Again, I'm not asking you to answer that question. I'm just saying that out loud because it's so top of mind to me right now. The fact that, and we'll jump right into the our new and fun uh, segment, which is the conspiracy theory corner, which Tom, we need some like music that plays whenever we say that. So I think you mentioned this to me, uh, in addition to the DM chat that he was having with him being SBF with some other reporter, he actually did a phone interview in the last couple of days, which I, again, I'm kind of muted this guy, SBF, um, that he basically said he donated equally to both parties. Yes. So, uh, this and interview, by the way, if you want to expand on that, feel free. If you don't, don't worry. But yeah, I, I think this is, uh, an opportunity to elucidate how money works in politics, where some of this money goes. Uh, so SBF did a phone interview, uh, with a woman named Tiffany Fong. Uh, you can find her on, on Twitter. She's not necessarily a massive account. I don't necessarily even think she credits herself as a reporter. Um, but she does say that she has been, you know, digging scoops on FTX and Celsius and uh, really goes to show in in some really cool ways, I guess, the power of citizen journalism. Mm -hmm. She's just been DMing some of the major players, you know, in BlockFi, Celsius, FTX, and just asking, hey, do you want to tell your side of the story? Now, there are obviously many concerns that come with that, right? If you're at uh, a respected journalistic publication, you might have more commitment to ethical journalism, et cetera. Some people <laughs> might. I, I, I don't know if I agree with that, but sure. Yeah. Ex fair. Um, but there's also some really, you know, interesting things that come from independent journalism. You might have someone like SBF, like we've seen here, be more willing to talk to someone because that's, that's true. Because right. they don't think that they have, you know, a partisan slant coming into it yep. or they don't have an agenda or a boss that's telling them to, you know, spin it in one way. Um, so what we've seen is SBF actually had a phone call one-on-one -on -one uh, with Tiffany, um, and the audio of this was was recently released, and uh, we can put this in the show notes. Um, I, I think if hmm. you're interested, listen to the full audio. It's fascinating. Um, and he talks about a lot of different things, and he really opens up for one of the first times since the you know, beginning of the collapse. Um, and one of the things that came out in this conversation was that uh, SBF said he has actually donated equally – to Republican candidates just as much or around equally just as much as he did to Democratic candidates. Because before it was like I think 190 million or something like that to Democratic candidates and maybe like 10-ish million to Republican candidates. So the the uh, ratio was like – Yeah, we can find the exact stats. But I think SBF's personal donations were about 90 percent Democrats. One thing I would like to emphasize though – is that there's SBF personally and there's FTX, which SBF was in charge of. Mm -hmm. And what we saw was FTX actually put a lot of money into Republican candidates. FTX, the the company. Company, yeah. And they funded a super PAC that funded primarily Republican candidates um, that were pro-crypto and pro-other things. Uh, and what we saw is that actually when you looked at the aggregate of the numbers between SBF and FTX, the company – uh, it was about a 50-50 split of public money to Democrats and Republicans. Um, even then, though, you look at SBF's personal public contributions, 
and it was largely skewed uh, to Democrats. But what he's saying in this interview is that he actually donated a lot of dark money to Republican candidates. And then define dark money. So long story short, if you go back to Citizens United, uh, it essentially allows certain types of nonprofits in the United States to receive unlimited donations without having to publicly disclose their donors. Now, those types of organizations are typically 501c4 nonprofits. So they're not a, a 501c3, which is the typical charity nonprofit that's tax deductible. A 501c4 can participate in elections. It can participate in lobbying. Now, if you want to obfuscate your money in American politics, you don't actually donate to a super PAC directly. What you do is you donate to a 501c4. They don't have to publicly disclose that you donated money to them. And then that 501c4 donates that money to a super PAC. Mm. Now, the super PAC does have to disclose that the 501c4 donated to them. But again, the 501c4 doesn't have to say where their money came from. So someone like SBF could put literally tens of millions of dollars into various 501c4s, and those 501c4s could donate to various super PACs that were supporting Republican candidates, and we would have zero idea unless he elected to tell us publicly so what how he do, did. So how do we find out about this? You don't, right? No, uh, no, but how do we find out about FTX then? Uh, oh, just because of the audio tape with uh, yeah, SPF? Yeah, SPF is saying this publicly, and so it raises an interesting question, and this is why it's on Conspiracy Corner, is you <laughs> have to ask yourself, because there's no way to prove this. You have to ask yeah. yourself. Uh, and really well, is qu- he telling the truth Is he not? telling the truth? Yeah. And uh, it's interesting because he says the reason he didn't publicly disclose is because he knew that the media would rip him, essentially. <sighs> he was scared of the backlash, and he's talked about this in some DMs. It's really fascinating seeing more and more about the character of this guy. Um, he's talked about essentially playing a character publicly that the media would like. Yep. And that, you know, playing to certain progressive notions from his perspective would ingratiate him more with mainstream media. It would make people like him more and it would allow his company to thrive, um, especially in Washington. And so uh, what you're seeing is that this guy in many ways, again, if you choose to believe him, was a pragmatist who saw benefit politically from giving money to a lot of different people, from greasing palms, so to say. And it wasn't necessarily a partisan thing. It was an SBF thing, mm-hmm. right? What is best for SBF? What is best for FTX? Again, you can choose to believe what you want. You can choose to believe that he was trying to make the world a better place um, or that he was trying to make his world a better place. It, it's really up to you. Um, but I, I think this idea of dark money and understanding that there's going to be a lot that we never know about, while that might make people more jaded and that might frustrate people even more, I think in some ways it can actually help assuage some of the initial conspiracies that people had that, you know, maybe this was like a Democrat, you know, uh, funding mechanism that FTX was this elaborate scam to get Joe Biden elected. Um, I think Occam's razor, right? Most likely outcome is there was a lot of personal gain for SBF and FTX to making these actions. Um, and that he was simply doing what was best for for him and his company and maybe the world if you believe his effective altruism. Yeah, we're definitely not going to go down the effective altruism uh, <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, that's for sure. Um, but well said. Um, unfortunately, I think we're going to be talking more and more about this as, as the weeks go on, especially about these hearings on Thursday. And then December 13th, you mentioned the, the second hearing with the uh, – 
uh, with Maxine Waters. Are there any other uh, hearings on the horizon or is that the, the main two? As far as I know, those are the main two. Again, though, keep your eyes out, keep your ears out, um, keep your ears open. There's going to be more announced. This is going to be a multi-month battle for sure. And I think what we're going to see is any legislation, any regulation that comes, and I actually like to talk about this for maybe a minute or two, yeah. you know, what, what we can expect. Any of that is going to come next year. And frankly, even then, that's a maybe. And so what we saw uh, with the midterms is we have a split House and Senate now. You know, Republicans control the House and Democrats control the Senate. That makes it really hard to pass meaningful regulation. That means regulation is likely going to have to be bipartisan. Um, now, what does that mean in terms of, all right, we have this FTX collapse. We have this uh, congressional hearing that's framed as what should Congress do to act? Now, what they're really asking is what do Democrats and Republicans need to agree on that needs to happen? And if you think about that Venn diagram, there hasn't been any crypto legislation passed up to this point, you know, explicitly you know, crypto regulatory legislation. And there's a reason for that because that Venn diagram doesn't actually have that much overlap. And even people within the Democratic and Republican parties uh, are split in between their own party of how to regulate this industry. Some people don't even believe that there should be regulation at all within yep. both parties, Democrats and Republicans. Um, some people think that we already have the enforcement mechanisms we need to stop this kind of thing. Some people think that we need comprehensive regulatory action. Some people think we need something in the middle. Now, all that is to say, in a split Congress, it's already really hard to get something done, even if your party's fully aligned. Yeah. Both parties are not fully aligned internally. They're not fully aligned externally. So yes, this is going to kick people into gear, and it, it is as ripe as possible for regulation, but the split Congress is going to make it extremely difficult for something to pass, and uh, it's likely going to take a while for there to be any agreement on what that is. Yeah, unfortunately, I think this is going to be just great clickbait journalism, and it's going to stay top of mind for a long time to drive clicks, to drive views, drive advertising, and a number of different uh, sound bites for a lot of different folks leading into, I think, the 2024 uh, election, um, which is just unfortunate. Um, but okay, uh, anything else you want to add there, or can we change gears to something I thought was really, really interesting? Yeah, let's uh, let's move on. Cool. So there was a Harvard PhD candidate who released a paper recently on Bitcoin. Um, tell me a little bit about the paper and uh, why you think it's important. Yeah, we'll keep this super high level. I definitely recommend you know reading the paper, skimming through it, or at the very least checking out the abstract, um, just yep. that first page, you know, in, in the show notes. Uh, but basically, this paper is from uh, a last year Harvard PhD, Matthew Ferranti, and he argues that. Central banks in other countries, essentially strategically, should hold Bitcoin. Uh, his argument is that it would help them evade sanctions, so that that's part of it. Um, but he, you know, runs different models and and tries to uh, aggregate different numbers, accounting for Bitcoin's price in the long term and different factors, you know, that that go into um, you know Bitcoin's game theory. And he comes to the conclusion that it is strategically beneficial for. You know, company or countries, excuse me, especially countries uh, that you know might not have the strongest currencies, right? Or may not even have their own currency. Exactly, uh, to hold Bitcoin, you know, on their balance sheet for central banks yeah. to hold Bitcoin. Th that's like the biggest no-brainer to me. Again, power corrupts, but if I was in charge of a smallerish nation and I had control of the printing press, I'd be like, okay, we're going to take a one percent allocation into Bitcoin. 
and we're going to hold this thing. I don't know. We'd have to think through the custody uh, aspect because, uh, you know, me holding it, uh, the keys, uh, would be uh, too big of a target. But with that said, it's like, all right, you're, you know, holding 1% of the circulating supply of Bitcoin. And all of a sudden, you're, you know, you move you, every year, knock on wood, you're moving up and up and up the ladder. Yep. So this is part of uh, Matthew Pines, our national security expert at BPI, Bitcoin Policy Institute. This is part of his I argument that, that, you know, if you're just looking at this from a probabilistic or expected outcome perspective, uh, it is strategically beneficial for the United States to hold a little bit of Bitcoin at the very least uh, in our Federal yep. Reserve, right, in our central bank. And if it works out, incredible. And if it doesn't, right, even if there's a 1% chance or a 3% chance. We have chance, the control of the printing press. Yeah, right? So so there's immense value for companies taking this asymmetric bet, um, you know, asymmetric bet that Bitcoin becomes the global reserve asset or that Bitcoin reaches parity with gold, which, you know, can be mutually exclusive, by the way. Um, and, and so, yeah, this paper makes a similar argument, which is that if you run different models um, because U.S. treasuries carry, you know, this sanctions risk – and there are countries that, you know, are going to be turned off by that sanctions risk. They're going to be looking to alternative reserve assets. And typically they've looked to something like gold and, you know, Bitcoin uh, and, and gold can be um, an attractive alternative to certain banks as a reserve asset. So there are a couple of reasons this paper is cool. One, I think the thing that immediately jumps out to people is they go, oh, Harvard released a study, you know, yeah. Harvard released a um, – a Harvard PhD student released a study. That's different than, you know, Harvard taking the official position that Bitcoin is good. Um, that's another caveat. Uh, you know, the paper doesn't necessarily say Bitcoin is good, right? Mm -hmm. It makes an argument that Bitcoin is good in this specific use case. Um, but it is notable that an Ivy League institution uh, and a PhD candidate from an Ivy League institution um, is, is coming out and writing about not just cryptocurrency, but this paper talks about Bitcoin yeah. specifically. It's Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. Um, I think it mentions Ethereum at, at certain points, but its argument is about holding Bitcoin as a reserve asset. That's extremely notable. He's not saying hold Dogecoin. He's not saying hold cryptocurrency broadly. Oh, He's saying Bitcoin uh, is a potential answer, um, which is fascinating. Could you imagine just the sen uh, if central banks had a run on Bitcoin? Oh, man. I don't even want to get there, especially in this bear market. But that'd be cool, especially for a <laughs> lot of uh, other uh, developing countries who are uh, resource rich that uh, want to um, have a decentralized uh, uh, currency and then also participate in the open monetary network. Uh, that is Bitcoin, the capital B. Um, I think that's the future we're working towards. I'm actually writing a paper right now that uh, argues that, you know, central banks should um, invest in FTT. <laughs> Shut um, up. Oh my God. <laughs> the, the FTX token. You um, got me there. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, Grant's right in research. Okay, cool. Well um, done, buddy. Um, all right. So uh, let's get to the third topic and final topic, uh, which is uh, awesome and hilarious to me. Uh, as a miner uh, that mines in a number of states as well uh, as well as the state of uh, Tennessee. Um, this past week, the New York mining moratorium was finally and officially signed uh, by the go governor. Um, tell me about this law, what it does, and why it matters. 
Yeah. So this law has been in the works for a while. In fact, it's actually been passed within the state of New York for a while. It was just waiting on the governor's signature for, for months and months. What awesome power. It's just like, oh, I'm going <laughs> to sit on this for a bit. So the state of New York uh, instated this two-year moratorium on new fossil fuel-powered cryptocurrency mining operations. Now, one thing that I think we've talked about on the show before is that whenever somebody says crypto mining, what they're really talking about is, is Bitcoin mining, right? Uh, yep, proof of work mining. Proof yep. of work mining, uh, which now that Ethereum has moved over to proof of stake, we're talking about Bitcoin mining. Yep. So what this is, is a Bitcoin mining ban. It is a Bitcoin mining moratorium uh, for new mining operations that use fossil fuels. Now, this is controversial for many reasons. Uh one is because it's essentially deciding a specific industry, um, you know, has uh, a specific burden with regards to what type of power it uses, uh, which is not necessarily how we regulate a lot of different industries. You know, we don't say, hey, ovens have to use 80% renewable power, right? We don't say- Washer um, and dryers. Yeah, have to use 30% renewable, right? Um, if we're setting climate goals- you know, generally we'd like to think that, you know, we're setting standards across all types of energy usage. And, you know, even if a state like New York has climate goals and, and accountability goals that they want to reach um, for carbon emissions, that that would be applied evenly across all different industries. Um, or at the very least, that they would be applied across, you know, adjacent or similar industries. So one of the things that people talk about a lot of the time is, you know, how is Bitcoin mining different from any other data center? Mm -hmm. You know, why is Bitcoin mining being uniquely pointed out? in this situation and why are data centers not included as well. And so there's a lot to dig into. This has been something, you know, if, if you've kind of been involved in, in Bitcoin a lot over the past year, you've probably heard about this. Um, but it is notable because there was a, a huge fight within the Bitcoin industry to push back on this. There were a lot of companies that came together, industry associations that came together to push back, to talk about the benefits of Bitcoin mining, to push back on the environmental uh, narratives that suggest that Bitcoin is destroying the planet, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. And despite all those efforts, the state of New York still went ahead and passed this uh, piece of legislation. And then it's notable because it just sat there. It sat there for a really long time. And it wasn't clear if it was actually going to be pushed through. And uh, while, you know, this piece of legislation technically, you know, doesn't impact existing operations, you know, if you're a miner and you're already using fossil fuels, um, you're grandfathered in, um, it doesn't allow them to expand either. Mm -hmm. They're only allowed to operate at the existing levels. Yeah, that helps me with the total exahash. So thank you, Governor Hokul, <laughs> sure. I believe is her name. Yeah, there, there's there's so much interesting stuff that, that comes from this bill. Uh, thinking about, all right, are other states going to look to New York um, as a uh, as a leader? Are other states going to you know take advantage of this? Right, a state like Tennessee. I'm looking at this and going, all right, awesome, New York, ban miners, and let's incentivize miners to come to Tennessee. That's an interesting play. I think you're going to see that from you know states like Wyoming and Texas as well. Um, so kind of interstate competition. But you might also see some um, you know more blue states, Democratic-run uh, states, look to New York um, for guidance on this issue. And now that they've taken this action, go, hey, there's precedent um, for banning Bitcoin mining. Uh, maybe we go down that route too. So it's actually going to be really interesting to see what type of interplay um, and actions happen between states. Totally. It's funny. I had an investment opportunity um, 
it was uh, similar to your point, um, not to put a label on the state, but I would, I will only invest in mining operations that are uh, predominantly in more of a pro-business or pro-Republican um, state versus a pro larger government, more regulated uh, state um, like a Illinois, a Washington, a California, and so on, because I actually think of it as a similar attack vector as having a mining operation in Russia or Kazakhstan or somewhere else that I don't actually, when they change regulations overnight, my business could be, or my investment could be uh, marked down to zero. Yeah. Let me make a, a caveat for myself personally and, and for BPI. You know, we're Again, we're a nonpartisan organization. Uh, we're happy to work with anybody who is willing to have good faith conversations totally. about Bitcoin. And I think, you know, when we talk about blue states versus red states, um, the main thing that we're talking about when it comes to Bitcoin mining is simply this environmental narrative. And yes, I'm painting with a broad brush. Not every state run by, a, 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 you know, Democratic governor, Democratic mayors and cities, you know, believes that Bitcoin is destroying the planet. Um, but there definitely is a trend that we're seeing um, from folks on the left. Uh, with this environmental argument against Bitcoin mining. I think at BPI, we're trying to push back against that because a lot of that data is flawed. Um, a lot of the uh, the data looking toward for the future, the projections are flawed. Um, some of the methods to come up with that data in the first place are flawed. There, there's a lot of misinformation, and then there's a lot of positives that come from Bitcoin mining that aren't taken into account in those conversations. So, you know, for us personally, it's, uh, it's not about red versus blue. Um, it's about are you willing to look at Bitcoin's positive benefits? Are you willing to look at what you might consider some negative externalities? Or are you willing to actually engage with that um, and, and, and make a choice about you know, whether this is, is beneficial for the United States and the people in it? Um, and unfortunately, people who get bogged down in the environmental debate, um, they're often not even looking at the benefits of Bitcoin. Um, they're so caught up in what they perceive to be these environmental externalities that they won't even engage with all the amazing things um, that Bitcoin already does and can do for our country. Yeah. Well, this was a jam-packed uh, episode, episode number three, after a huge USA win. Um, thank you again. Is there anything else you want to close out this week's episode with, Grant? Oh, man. Uh, I'm excited for next week or the next time I'm on this show. Yeah, I we're going oh, to have a lot to talk about. Yeah, when, when we first started this um, – Part of me was wondering, you know, is there going to be enough, <laughs> right? Every week, is there going to be enough to talk about? And now, you know, we're having to cut half the ideas that we have, you know, every week totally. at the beginning of the show. Um, I think in some ways it's it's exciting to see our industry uh, have so much attention on it. On the other hand, that's also really concerning, right? Because yes. uh, when all eyes are on the industry, there are a lot of people who are now incentivized to act. And, uh, their job is to act. Their job like, is to act. literally do something and sitting on their hands and doing nothing or reducing regulation doesn't seem like it is they're doing their job, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, think about, you know, any other situation, uh, you know, not just in politics, you know, we were talking about sports and I guess this comes full circle. You know, if there's a, a referee, they oftentimes, right, are going to err on the side of, you know, calling yeah. something, calling a penalty, calling a flag, because there's more, uh, they're, they're going to get more kudos for taking an action rather than not taking one at all. 
Um, And so that's just one example. I think there are a lot of situations like that where uh, from the public's perspective, we want to see strong leaders. And there's research on this too that looks at like what do people gravitate toward in leaders and, um, you know, what do people care about? People want leaders who take action. Um, You know, people want leaders who – who they think are, are strong and take accountability and, and are willing to put the hammer down when, when time is uh, needed. I think what we've actually seen is some of the greatest leaders in history um, are exactly that because of their restraint. And so it's about that balance, right? Um, in the times where you feel the most pressure to do something, um, that might actually be the time to take a step back, take stock of the situation, um, and, and really you know, take your time and figure out, am I acting just to act um, or am I acting because I think it's the best thing to do in the situation? Or not acting for the best situation. But that's very, very well said, Grant. And I think that's a great place to close. So thanks again, uh, buddy. I think you're going to be away next week. So we're going to have a uh, – we're going to work special on a call. Guest. A special guest for next week, uh, which is exciting. And I'll be honest, this has been fun. I mean, I'm learning a lot uh, how the sausage is made, uh, whether I like it or not. Um, life is a learning experience. So thank you again for uh, pushing me towards this. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rod. Always a blast. Cheers, everyone.